this morning to the book of Exodus, and uh, we are surveying particularly here the great object of center of uh, Israel's ceremonial law, at least at this period, uh, and that was the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness. Uh, a great deal of Exodus, beginning in chapter 25. Uh, through 30, 31 gives the specific instructions as to uh, how the tabernacle is to be built, uh, all of the items that are going to be involved in that tabernacle structure. We have a little parenthesis, if you will, as we have that golden calf incident uh, that reflects the great sin of the people, but then beginning again in about chapter 35 to the end, uh, we have the same instructions that are given, but this time uh, reflecting the obedience of the people in making this tabernacle precisely as God had ordered. Uh, and we think we emphasized that uh, idea last week, that whatever we have here in this tabernacle is not the device of men. Uh, it is not the architecture of Moses and Aaron in some building committee. Uh, everything that was done in this tabernacle was by divine design, by divine order, on divine purpose. And I suggested to you last time, both uh, really all the way from the uh, teaching of the Scripture, exactly what that tabernacle was a pattern of. Uh, Hebrews tells us flat out that this was the pattern of those things in heaven. Uh, the argument of the Incarnation is that Christ uh, was dwelling among men, the very purpose of the tabernacle. Uh, the New Testament indicates that believers, both individually and corporately, uh, are the temple of God. So we have this very full uh, gospel picture uh, that the Lord is setting down here uh, by means of this very visible uh, object lesson. And it's imperative here, and I emphasize this again, uh, that what we are going to see in the tabernacle, in its entirety, in its individual parts, uh, must not be understood in isolation from the gospel truths that God is picturing, and it's a picture prophecy uh, of all of these things that we have just identified, not the least of which will be that entire gospel work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very powerful message here. It's one that I think we're all aware is easy to get bogged down in. Uh, I have read things and heard things about various... Uh, parts and interpretation of the tabernacle that are fascinating, uh, that are detailed into the extreme, uh, and you know I, I'm not going to uh, deal with all of those and make any major criticisms, uh, except to say uh, I think it is safest for us uh, to, rather than allowing our imagination to get as fertile as we can, trying to think up some parallel between X and Y. Uh, I, I personally, I don't take that as a mark of spirituality necessarily, but if you do, then Lord bless you. Uh, I, I want the text to speak for itself without uh, my just uh, sitting there thinking of all possible things that the Scripture itself is not focusing upon. I think there is plenty in the tabernacle uh, that even, if I dare say on the surface, uh, is declaring the salient message uh, that the Lord would have us to learn. And that's what I want to focus on here. Uh, and you can take this, and uh, I trust it will bless you uh, as you read through Exodus on your own. But the tabernacle is a beautiful, beautiful picture. Uh, 
Now, last time we spent a little effort on the identification of the terms, the names of the tabernacle that are all instructed. Uh, I don't recall exactly how far I got last week. Did we start talking at all about the uh, the structure of the tabernacle, the four plans? Did I say anything about the floor plans of the tabernacle? Let me start there just make a few uh, broad statements concerning the floor plan, and then I want to look at the furniture uh, of the tabernacle specifically. Uh, the, the tabernacle from the floor plan consisted of three parts. had the outer court, and then the holy place, and then the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Uh, in the Holy of Holies, we're going to see in due course here, uh, was the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is that climactic, uh, visible manifestation, token, object lesson of the presence uh, of God with His people. And I'll say some things about the Ark of the Covenant in due course. Uh, but that was in the most holy place. The holy place had three principal pieces of furniture that I'll discuss here in just a moment. Had the table of showbread, had the candlestick or the lampstand, uh, and the altar of incense. All of that was in the holy place. In the outer court, uh, there was the labor and the brazen altar. So those uh, are the basic divisions and furniture positions uh, in the tabernacle. Uh, and all of those were part of the message. All right? There's such an emphasis placed upon the structure, such an emphasis placed upon uh, the furniture that is placed in each of those locations, that it's clear that God is teaching a lesson from those points. Uh, and we can go beyond that perhaps, and we will in some instances as far as how they were constructed, uh, but it's all very important. Now, I want you to see that the, even the message that is being taught here uh, in the very structure of the tabernacle. Remember, we noted from the terms of the tabernacle, here is the dwelling place. Here is where God is going to dwell with His people. Now, that was not the reality. Please understand that. I don't want to belabor the point here, uh, but I know the nonsense that I have to deal with most every day of my life. The tabernacle was not the reality of the presence of God. All right? It was a sign of that presence. They did not believe, and God was not telling the people, Oh, look, I live in this little box inside this dark room. Uh, that is not what the lesson was. It was a token, it was a visible representation of the reality of that presence uh, that here was given in object lesson. So, uh, we, we have to understand that, otherwise the Old Testament is going to be uh, for them and not for us. Uh, God had built in... Uh, safeguards all the way through this to keep the people, to keep those people uh, from confusing the object lesson with the reality. And I'll point out some of those as we go through as well. But I say think of the structure here. Uh, the outer court. Uh, this was open. This was an open area, open to the sky, uh, enclosed but open. Uh, and uh, the covenant community uh, had right to enter into that uh, open court. Uh, we come to the holy place, uh, and there uh, entrance and service was limited to the priesthood. Uh, the nation as a whole, the people as a whole, could not enter into that holy place. That was limited uh, to, the, uh, to the administration and the function of the priestly order. And then beyond that, you have the most holy place. Uh, and only the high priest uh, could enter there. And his entrance was extremely restricted. Only he could go. Only he could go on one time of the year. 
And he could never go in apart from blood, always taking the blood of the sacrifice to sprinkle upon uh, that mercy seat, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but you can see the you, you can see the restrictions. On the one hand, I say the tabernacle is telling us that God dwells with His people, uh, that God is here with His people. But yet, the very structure of the tabernacle uh, is making it clear uh, that you get to God and you have fellowship with God on His terms. All right, you don't go barging in. Uh, to the presence of God. There is a reverence here. There is a holiness here. Yes, there is fellowship uh, available between God and His people. Uh, but there are restrictions to that access that we have with God. And the closer we get, if that Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place represents the, the climax, the, 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 uh, the ideal presence of God in its truest sense, you see, uh, if that marks the climax then you can see the closer one gets to God, the more restrictions uh, there are placed upon him. All right? The more holiness, can we put it in these terms? The closer one gets to God, the more holy he must be. Uh, those that ascend to the holy place, the psalmist says, must have clean hands and a pure heart. Uh, it is sin that separates between God and men. Uh, it is the... Uh, our, our sins and iniquities that separate and rob us from the fellowship. If we are going to know the purity of that fellowship, then there must be cleanness and there must be purity. Uh, and the closer we get to God, uh, the more sensitive to sin we are going to be, uh, the more conscious of our failures we are going to be, uh, the more conscious of our imperfections we are going to be. Uh, and, and I say we have a very graphic picture of this. Uh, here is... Uh, great warnings that God uh, placed upon the people. Uh, you, you do it this way or you'll die. God says, I'm available here. Here's where I am. You want to meet me. You want to have fellowship with me. Then here's how you do it. But you don't barge in. Uh, and there were serious penalties. Uh, almost a dilemma here, if you will. Uh, fellowship with God, but there's death if you don't do it right. Well, exactly that's the point. You see, Exactly that's the point. Uh, restricted access. Uh, and in that restriction of the access, that, by the way, is part of the built-in obsolescence. All right? That is part of the built-in obsolescence to this tabernacle and whole mosaic economy that God was building in. Any Israelite with a lick of spiritual sense uh, would have realized, as this becomes a picture of all of this, that, hey, this is not... Excuse the language here. This ain't working. You see? This ain't working. There must be something else. There must be something else that will work. And it was that built-in obsolescence that this is not working that generated their faith and encouraged their faith and pointed them to the reality of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world that did work. Uh, all of this was just a picture. But what a picture it was. Uh, as we move toward the center, as we move toward that most holy place, more and more restrictions because God is holy uh, and there must be absolute holiness. Uh, there must be that absolute purity uh, if there is to be that entrance into the very presence uh, of the Lord. All right, now let me say a word. And I'm only going to be suggestive here. This could really go on forever in many ways. Uh, so I'm only going to be suggestive uh, as we look at this tabernacle furniture, the placement of it, and the primary uh, object lesson symbolism, and then prophecy, the typo typology uh, that is involved. Not without significance. Right? It's not without significance that as soon as you would make your way into that 
court area, that open court, that the very first piece of furniture was the brazen altar, the altar of sacrifice. Uh, this is the altar in which the burnt offerings would be offered, the sin offering. This was the principal altar on which the sacrifices were going to be made. Uh, and I say that was a very vivid lesson. It's a very vivid lesson. The very first place that a man has to stop uh, if he is going to make his way to God and have fellowship with God and entrance into the presence of God is at the place of sacrifice, the place where the shedding of the blood takes place. Without the shedding of the blood, there is no remission. It is our sin that separates. It is our sin that keeps us and precludes us from having any fellowship with God. So God deals with the sin right at the very beginning. Uh, what can man do? The, the, uh, the offerer of the sacrifice would come in as guilty and as sinful as uh, sin and guilt could be. He came as he was. Uh, and, and there was no... I was thinking about this just uh, yesterday. I'm writing some, some things for, for this book and dealing with this particular issue right in this chapter. Uh, and it, it just struck me in a way that really never struck me before, I suppose, or at least uh, in... in that context. You know, I say the order is extremely important. The, la the labor, right? It, had the labor been the first thing and then the altar, uh, we'd be in a real mess. All right? We'd be in a real mess. If we had to clean ourselves up, all right? if we had to clean ourselves up before we could go any further, we'd be in a real mess. But what a picture of the gospel this is. A sinner comes to the cross as he is. A sinner comes with all of his sin. He comes with all of the burden and the guilt and the bondage and the baggage of all of that sin and he brings it to the place of the altar. Uh, and that's the very first thing. And there, as we'll see, uh, and we'll talk a little bit in due course about the nature of the sacrifices that were offered there and what they were symbolizing and typifying. Uh, but it's not, uh, it's not uh, uh, a very uh, mysterious lesson here. Uh, very much on the surface. Here's this tabernacle, God dwelling. There's the most holy place. The first step is at, is at the place of the sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And so God provides the means uh, at the very beginning of this journey to Him uh, that uh, deals with that great hindrance to fellowship and communion. Sin is taken care of. The place of the altar. Uh, I, I don't want to belabor uh, this much, but it's, it, to me it's interesting as well. When you look at the... Uh, the instructions that were given concerning uh, the, the building of this altar. Uh, it was to be an altar that was made of earth uh, and unhewn stones. Uh, made of earth and unhewn stones. Uh, I, I don't want to take this too far, but it, it's suggestive to me anyway uh, that here are natural objects, unmanufactured objects, objects, if you will, that man had no definite part in in their forming, in their construction. This is just the rocks uh, that there, the earth that was there that God created. See, uh, when I was thinking of this, you know, the Bonar's old old hymn. You know, we sang it I think last Sunday evening. Uh, Not what these hands have done. You see. Not what these hands have done. The sinner makes no contribution, you see. Uh, the sinner makes no contribution. Uh, if, if the Lord says, now, you know, give, give me some nice blocks that you've smoothed out and that you've... Uh, there, there's man's cooperation in, in this work of atonement. But no, sir. Uh, man had his hands off of this. Uh, man was not to add his expertise. He was not to add his artistry. He was not to give any sign of his contribution and talent or whatever else. No, no, no. It was simply what God had done. Here's the altar. See? 
You just come as you are. Uh, you just come as you are. And, and, and I, I, I do think, without uh, suggesting too much, that even the emphasis here placed upon this as being just earth and unhewn, uncut, unmanufactured stones, uh, that uh, it was a testimony, uh, a declaration that you keep your hands off of this. All right? you just, man, you just keep your hands off of this. Uh, this is the work of God. Here is the sacrifice. Well, that's the first thing. Uh, at the very first uh, piece of furniture, you're going to get to God. You can't get to God apart from the sacrifice. What a very obvious lesson that was. But then we move on beyond. You move on beyond the uh, altar, the brazen altar, altar burnt offering, as it's called, uh, and you come to the laver, uh, a wash basin. All right, the laver was a wash basin, uh, and now from this point on. As far as the using of this, only the priests are going to wash themselves here. The offerers bring their animals for the sacrifice, the priest, and we'll talk about the mechanics of that in due course. Uh, but here is the labor. Here is the labor. There's a washing now. And again, it's not without significance to me that the labor uh, follows the altar. All right? But once you've been to the altar, uh, and obviously it doesn't take, again, a great deal of sense here to see that the water was there for washing. Uh, the water was there for cleansing. Uh, but that cleansing and the effects of that cleansing are on the other side, uh, on the other side of the altar, you see. Having been uh, uh, forgiven, having been redeemed, whatever we want to use here in terms of being at the altar, now then uh, the life is cleaned up, you see. Now the life is cleaned up. Now, here, here's this cleansing. It's going to speak in some ways of regeneration. It's going to speak in some ways of our sanctification. But just the idea of cleansing. Uh, there's a difference now. Uh, what takes place on the other side of the altar as we begin now this move of service under the Lord is different than what was taking place on the other side of the altar. Uh, here's the labor. It, it's not, I think, again, without significance that when you look at the construction, uh, of this labor, it was made. Remember, remember, we talked last week about all the peoples uh, that were giving their gifts and making the supplies for the building of the uh, of the tabernacle. Well, the labor was made uh, from the the basin part anyway. Uh, was made from the looking glasses, the mirrors uh, that the ladies had donated. All right, here are the looking glasses, the mirrors uh, that the ladies had donated in. Uh, their offerings unto the Lord uh, in the building of the tabernacle. Uh, and, and so here, as, as the priest would look, you know, there, there he sees himself and, and whatever else. And that's, that's all, I, I think, not without significance. Now, when you compare this then, and, and, and I want to use the, the New Testament hints and clues uh, that will guide us in the uh, interpretation. Uh, here, here is the, uh, the Word of God, right? Uh, the Word of God that reveals uh, our sins, our blemishes. Uh, Christ says, what, where is that Christ says that? Uh, in, in John 15, is it? John 15 says, Now are you clean through the Word that I have uh, spoken unto you? Uh, sanctified by, by the Word? Where is, is there a, a Colossians talks? Is it Colossians? I don't know. I may be getting out of my league now when I come to New Testament. Um Sometimes these things cross my mind. You know what, what happens here. And I think of something, but it's not really... This is... Well, you see, that was not right. I was thinking Colossians 4.4, 4, and that's not even close. Say what? Is Ephesians? 
<laughs> it may be, but it's not 4-4. Say what? That's it. Thanks for the book. Thanks for the chapter. And you see, I was nowhere close, except I knew what it said. And my theory is, right, it's if, you, if you know what it says, if you, you, know, it's, you can find it easy enough. Just ask people. All right. Uh, yeah, I should have known this. I'm so embarrassed now. Uh, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it in order that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. I submit that Paul had in mind labor theology when he said that. Uh, that's labor theology. Uh, that he might cleanse it with the washing of water uh, by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle. All right, important. All right, so here is the labor. Uh, after the altar, all right, after the altar, uh, symbolizing the cleansing and the means of grace, all right, and the means of grace whereby, uh, whereby that cleansing and that purification is going to take place. It's through the word that reveals our blemishes, that shows us the way uh, in which that cleansing can take place. So that's the labor. Now, once the priests have so cleansed themselves and so sanctified themselves, then they can make their way uh, into the holy place. And I say the holy place, this was more restricted. Uh, it was veiled, but not completely dark. Uh, and inside, there were three principal pieces of furniture. On the one side, the table of showbread. On the other side, the lampstand, and then, as we'll see, right smack up against uh, the veil uh, that separated the holy place from the most holy place, right smack up against that thick curtain, uh, was the altar of incense. All right, let me suggest a few things about these principal pieces uh, of furniture. Uh, let me start with the table of showbread. Uh, literally, it's the... Uh, it's the bread of faces, all right? the table of the bread of faces. Uh, that bread which is in the presence of, that bread which uh, is presented. We'll often call this the bread of presentation. All right? That's the idea of the authorized version's translation there, the showbread. This is the bread that is being showed uh, unto the Lord, presented uh, unto uh, the Lord. Uh, Twelve loaves kept fresh on a regular basis, put there by the priest. This was bread that was hallowed, bread that was sanctified, uh, as it was there put and presented uh, before the Lord. Twelve loaves, obviously representing then the twelve tribes of Israel. Here is the, uh, here is the body corporate. Uh, here is the body corporate uh, that has their representation here upon this table of presentation unto the Lord. Now, I think the, uh, the most obvious lesson here uh, that I see from the table of showbread uh, is the picture of dedication and the picture of consecration uh, that those that have been redeemed and cleansed are now owing unto the Lord. Here is the bread. Bread is something that man makes. Bread is something that man makes. Uh, this bread didn't just... This wasn't manna, right? It wasn't the stuff that dropped out of the heavens. Uh, here is the bread that man had made. Uh, God gave the substance, yes. God gave the substance. But here is man taking that which God has given and now baking this bread and then presenting it uh, in consecration 
in dedication, in thankfulness, in praise unto the Lord, acknowledging that everything that we have... Now, this was just uh, one little part. But acknowledging that everything that uh, we have has come from the hand of God. Uh, and now in, uh, in praise, now in thanksgiving, we are dedicating, we are, we are acknowledging that all that we have uh, is from the hand uh, of God. Uh, the salvation, the altar, the cleansing, yes, and then I say this extends to every, uh, every area of life uh, as well. The praise uh, that is to be a true constitution of worship. How can we worship? And the tabernacle is teaching us how to worship. An essential part of worship, an essential part of worship, is the giving uh, of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord in recognition uh, of all that He has done that everything that we are and everything that we have is from His good hand upon us. Uh, and the showbread uh, becomes a very beautiful picture, I think, of the consecration uh, of the believer. But ultimately, uh, but ultimately, this speaks of Christ as well, uh, who above all, uh, and ideally, uh, and without uh, any deviation, had consecrated Himself. Uh, and dedicated himself unto his Father and unto the will of his Father. Uh, there is that ideal consecration, certainly. Uh, but I don't want to miss the lesson that it has uh, for us. Here's now something that we are contributing. Uh, it's not much. You know, what can we contribute? Uh, it's not much. Uh, but that's not the point. All right? It's not the point what we contribute, but the fact that we are ascribing unto the Lord the thanksgiving, the praise, the dedication of ourselves. Paul says, and I think the logic of Paul in Romans chapter 12 is following the logic of the tabernacle precisely. Uh, we studied Romans together some time ago in those first 11 chapters. We saw all of those great uh, gospel truths. Here's our justification and here's our sanctification and here's our glorification. Here's our election. Here's our adoption. Here are all of these great theological gospel truths. And then we hit chapter 12 and Paul says what? On that basis, on that basis, present yourself a living sacrifice. You see, We give ourselves as a living sacrifice uh, in dedication, in consecration, in service uh, unto the Lord, uh, in view of all of the gospel truths. And I say that is very much, I think, on the surface here. Here's the altar, uh-huh. There's the labor, there's our, there's our uh, justification, and there's our uh, expiation, and there's our sanctification. Here's all this stuff that God does for us. And now, here is the consequent uh, consecration, the presentation of self uh, in the form uh, of the loaves uh, unto the Lord in that dedication. On the other side, on the other side we have the lampstand. And this is a beautiful picture here. Uh, the lampstand, all of one piece, uh, constructed of gold, all a single piece of gold, uh, seven branches, seven lamps particularly. Uh, I, again, will not go into all the details as to the shape and the uh, various details, but as you read it, pay, pay a careful attention. Uh, to what is being suggested concerning uh, the shape. There are differing opinions. I have mine, and that's what I'm going to give you now, uh, which is all I can really give. Right. Uh, 
uh, seven, seven, seven lamps, there's a center shaft, and then the six branches on either side of that center shaft. I think if you read carefully, uh, at least you'll get the suggestion that that center shaft was predominant. All right, the center shaft was uh, predominantly and preeminently higher than the rest. Uh, when I was in Israel a couple of years ago, and every uh, every shop in every street corner, you could buy little souvenirs of menorahs. Right, little you've seen them. I have one someplace at home uh, right now, uh, and I, I looked at those, and I buy. You know, I bought one, but I said you guys are missing the point. Uh, usually they're all right all the branches are just leveled right across there and it fits and it's nicely balanced as it sits on your mantle uh, but missing the point alright missing the point uh, I, I believe that you'll find that that cinder shaft uh, was predominantly higher than all of the other branches uh, and then from that cinder shaft came the others and you'll read in your Bible about those almond bowls that uh, constituted the uh, the lamps in which the oil was placed. Uh, again, my suggestion is, I'm not going to be dogmatic here, but this is how I see it, uh, that each of those lamps, those bowls on each of those branches were so, uh, were so shaped that the light from that particular lamp uh, would bear its light and direct its light toward the center shaft. So, uh, a beautiful picture, and I think we'll see the implications of that uh, here in just a moment. So you, can you get that picture? You know, get the overhead and we'll draw, get Tim in here and make a picture for us. Uh, center shaft higher than all the others. The six branches, three on each side, with the bowls for the fire, for the for the flame. Uh, so what, con concave, what do you call those things? What do you call that? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, not just flat, but kind of like that. So it reflects off onto the uh, onto the center shaft. All right, now, beautiful picture here. Doesn't take again a lot of sense to see what light does. All right, light takes away the darkness. All right, light takes away the darkness. Uh, it's a picture of illumination. It's a picture of the enlightenment uh, that God uh, has graciously given to His people. I say that doesn't take a lot of sense uh, to see uh, what the purpose of the light is. Uh, and we're going to see a couple of things here, I think, as far as the significance of the lampstand is concerned. Uh, there is significance in the very fact of the light, and there is going to be significance in the lampstand's construction uh, and uh, its, its purpose. But the light itself, I, I would submit then that the light, that the light uh, that is shining forth uh, is a symbol, an object lesson, a reminder uh, of the illumination and the revelation that God has given uh, to his people uh, that instructs them concerning the very truth of the gospel. Uh, it, it's not, I think, without significance. And here I go again. I just had this verse cross my mind. And now I'm scared. Now I'm scared. But it's Old Testament, so I got a better shot at it. The Lord is the fountain of life, and in thy light we see light. What is that? Is that psalm? Come on. Thirty-six. Psalm thirty-six. For with thee is the fountain of life, and in thy light we shall see light. Alright? The Lord see the connect that the psalmist is making here between life and light. Between life and light. 
Uh, and again, I think this is not, uh, this is not accidental. Uh, I would suggest that there's a whole lot of uh, tabernacle theology uh, that David is understanding and reading in, uh, plugging into that particular statement, a connection between life and light. Uh, the New Testament, all right, the New Testament... Uh, often speaks, uh, and I think this is right. Yeah, I know this text, Second Corinthians uh, four four. Right here is the light of the glorious gospel. All right, there's the light of the glorious gospel. We're not pressing things. I'm not reading stuff into this. Uh, this to me is the salient message of that light, uh, the revelation, the illumination of truth, of saving truth uh, that God gives to His people. Uh, Old Testament understood that connection. Uh, the New Testament plays upon that same uh, idea of the light of the glorious gospel. So we see the light then as the revelation that God gives to his people. Uh, but the lampstand speaks of the bearer of that light. Uh, and I think it doesn't, again, press things far uh, when we uh, plug in the plug in the lampstand. That was good. Uh, actually, you couldn't do that back then. Uh, factor in when we factor in what we know the Lord Jesus says uh, about himself as the light and the church as the light both individually and corporately Christ identified himself what I am the light of the world Christ told his disciples you are the light of the world not lights but you are the light of the world in Revelation, and here's the corporate sense. In Revelation, uh, in chapter 1, as John has that magnificent uh, vision, he sees the Lord Jesus among what? And how does he identify the churches? As the lampstands. As the lampstands. Uh, so the church corporately, uh, the believers individually, and Christ uniquely uh, are designated, uh, if you will, as the light of the world. I think the testimony that we have concerning John the Baptist uh, in uh, the opening chapter of John chapter 1 uh, is very expressive of what I suggested concerning the very shape uh, and structure of the, uh, of the lampstand. Remember what, they, what it says about John? I think I'm going to read this passage in, in the opening uh, part of the service today. I was considering this yesterday. Uh, beautiful, beautiful passage. John says, I'm not that light. See, I'm not that light. But I bear witness to that light. All right, so what is the purpose? That, I think, explains the lampstand's branches, uh, ideally. All right? Here are the branches that bear witness and bear and shed their light toward... We, it is our job as light bearers, not to call attention to ourselves, mercy, no. It is our job, it is our ministry and our function to bear witness to that one that is uh, the true light. Uh, in the tabernacle, have this lampstand then that I think was a very beautiful picture uh, of that function of the church. I'll say one final thing uh, about the lampstand. Uh, not without significance again that the emphasis is placed upon uh, it being a single piece. Uh, it was all one piece. Don't know how they did it, but it was all one piece. Uh, those branches were not in some way uh, later appended uh, to that center shaft. Uh, it was constructed of a solid piece. 
uh, molten, I would assume, but the mechanics of it are not my concern. It was all a single piece. Uh, if then, if then that center shaft, that predominant center shaft, uh, becomes a type of Christ who is the light of the world, and the external, the side branches become a type of the church, believers, as the light of the world. There's a union there. There's an inseparable union there between the branches and the center shaft. Uh, and again, I would suggest, I would suggest that part of the prophecy there, part of the picture prophecy there, is this inseparable union that exists between uh, believers uh, and the Messiah, between believers uh, in Christ. Uh, that's very obvious to me. Right? That's obvious. When I'm, and we plug in all of the other uh, scripture uh, reflecting how both the Old and the New Testament writers understood that uh, uh, I think we see the Lord's intent. We see the Lord's intent. All right, well, our time is gone uh, today. There are two more pieces uh, of furniture that we want to uh, talk about. Altar of incense right up against the veil. And then we'll, we'll cross over to that veil. See then the Ark of the Covenant. All right, let's uh, close in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do give our thanks for the Word of God, for its message, for the light that it has uh, revealed. We're thankful, Lord, for that day when the light of the glorious gospel uh, shone in our hearts. We pray that uh, we would know what it is to uh, live in that light and to bear witness of that light as we seek to serve uh, in the little capacities that you have given to us. So, Lord, bless this study. Give us insight and uh, understanding. Let this be instructive to our souls. Lord, help us now as we move from here to the sanctuary. We pray that we would know your presence there. We pray that the Word of God would have free course as it's preached this morning. And then, Lord, do bless us uh, as we sit around the table, those object lessons that you have left for us uh, to remind us, to make us think uh, about the reality of spiritual truth. So, Lord, give this uh, day your blessing. Uh, speak to us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.